Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Working Audio Tools podcast with myself, Ed Thorne, and fellow YouTuber, Paul Third. Today, we have another guest, and this is a particularly exciting guest for me because I have hired this gentleman to do some work for me in the past, which has been mastering some of my very own songs. The first time I heard his master, I thought, I'm not quite sure what he's done. And then I heard on multiple systems, and I thought, okay, there's a genius behind this quality of mastering that is worth paying for, and you just can't replicate using plugins. Without further ado, the gentleman is a 100,000 YouTuber. Uh, he has his own courses online and has a long, prolific, star-studded history in the mastering world. His name is Streaky. Welcome to the channel, Streaky. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for paying for my mastering services in the past, may I say, before we kick off. That's all right. I'm pleased, I'm pleased you're still talking to me. <laughs> They're free from now on, though, right, for the exposure we're giving you on this yeah, podcast, so, yeah. right? Yeah. customer, eh? <laughs> yeah. Is it harder now for UK-based engineers to get a start in the industry as opposed to maybe, say, like 10, 20 years ago? Is it more difficult? Is it easier with, like, social media and stuff like that? I think it's a hell of a lot easier but very different because when I started, it was 96. You had to work in a studio. The only mastering studios around, you had to go to a mastering studio. There was no internet. So you people turned up with their tapes, their dats or their uh, half inch, and then you mastered it with them. Where now, and obviously it was a very smaller industry then because you had to have a record label. You had to be chosen by a record label to be released. So you also, um, then the record label chose certain mastering engineers to do most stuff, which was Townhouse back in London in the day, did most of the stuff. Um, and so you had to, it, was, it was difficult to be a mastering engineer at a decent level because you had to have all the equipment. You had to have 1630 machines, which are old digital tape machines. You had to have loads of gear. So there was no way of you really starting off. There was only a certain amount of opportunities. Now... I think you can do whatever you want to do. If you've got an idea in your head and you want to do it, get on with it. It's just down to you to how much work you're going to put in, how you're going to network and how you're going to get the work. And then that's down to you to how good you are when you've got the work and the relationships you build and the network. And then you can do whatever you want to do. I mean, you can earn a living at it just working on loads of tracks that aren't famous or you can push up further and try and network and get, you know, to work on famous stuff but there's so many people making music now and there's so many mastering engineers and so many tools that you can get in the box for free so there's no excuses at all for if it's what you really really want to do there's no excuses for not getting as big as you want to get totally agree with the idea that there's no excuses for not being able to do something or know something especially with resources like youtube so how did you go from um, beginning, making out, starting out to, be, to work at Metropolis, I believe, to then deciding to run a YouTube channel and release your own courses? So uh, brief history, without boring you too much. I started in, I basically wanted to work in a studio forever, like loads of people. I, I grew up, I was DJing from the age of 12. I was playing instruments. Um, I was playing in bands. I was doing weddings, I was doing, then Acid House came along and I became a sort of Acid House DJ touring around. Um, got to sort of, I really wanted to work in a studio. I used to write off to studios on a typewriter <laughs> back then. 
and uh, print them off and then send them out in envelopes through the post every single week to all the different studios in London and wherever because I just wanted to work in a studio. Didn't know what I wanted to do, just wanted to be in the industry, wanted to be turning knobs because obviously I did that with DJing and so that was my main focus. And I remember getting letters back from Abbey Road because people actually did send you letters back then as well, which was pretty cool. They didn't want me, but a job came up at Battery Studios where they said... Uh, we've got a place in our CD mastering department. So I was like, I haven't got a clue what that means, but I'll go <laughs> along. So I went along, had an interview. They were talking to me about umatic tapes in the interview, and I was just like, yeah, 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 I love all that, yeah. <laughs> and so then I got thrown into this. So they gave me the job, which at the time was the just the greatest feeling I've ever had in my whole life because I was working in really horrible jobs, office jobs that I absolutely hated, and I would have done anything to work in music, anything. So when I got that call saying, you've got the job, I went straight into my work the next day and said, I'm gone. And I couldn't believe how, it's just the feeling, the euphoria feeling of doing it, where now you can kind of m mooch into it. But to get a job in a studio is so big at the time. So anyway, I got a job at Battery, and as luck would have it, Battery was part of Zomba. And Zomba had Jive and all these other big record labels as part of their thing. They were across the road. So I knew that if I wanted to be good at like in the studio, I'd need to get in with the A&R guys across the road. So I made friends with everybody there. That was um, smart, yeah. I worked in a little tiny room. There's a picture of that on my website or on somewhere on my uh, Instagram. And so I used to get the tracks to come over. I didn't know what I was doing whatsoever. So I didn't have a clue. I just said, yeah, I can do it. I had an EQ and a compressor and a load of tapes. I was doing a lot of tape copying. And then I basically got given tracks to master. So one of the first tracks came over was Return of the Mac. No way. <laughs> Don't know what I'm doing. Put a bit of EQ on it. He was in there with me because, like I said, everyone used to come in. He came in with all his gang. He used to come in then all the time. And then I would get different artists coming over. So then I did Groove Armada in there, all their sort of albums. And then I did, and I was getting to work on things like Tribe Called Quest, Britney Spears, Backstreet Boys, all this stuff was like part of the record label. So I was mastering little, like a lot of the time, remixes and B-sides and things like that. And then you'd get the occasional track in that you would do. But any English artist, then I would get to do those, which was cool. So I got, I was in the right place and I didn't really know what I was doing at all. I didn't know what a compressor did. I just, someone said, you've got a compressor there. Have I? I don't know what it, I don't know what those buttons do, but I'm still working on this decent stuff. And I had a, a digital EQ called a Harmonia Monday. Didn't know what that, didn't know anything about frequencies. I didn't have a clue. So I would just put like, someone said, oh, 12K, because you had no internet to look it up. So you're kind of working out for yourself. And I couldn't tell anyone I didn't know what I was doing because I was in the job of my dreams. So I'm then thinking, fuck, just get on with it and work it out. And so I worked out, listened into a few conversations, went in the studios because they had recording studios too. So I'd, I'd also then go at night and I'd be writing music on an Atari and a sampler because I was still writing music then. So I'd be producing music, DJing at the weekends, and then I'd be like during the day doing blagging my way doing mastering and then another guy came and he was called Chris Parmenides he's a really good mastering engineer he came to work in the room next door and he was the one that then started talking to me about sound and about frequencies and then I started getting into okay well how does my room sound how do my speakers sound 
what setup have I got? And so that night I went and got a hammer from the um, studio, um, you know, the maintenance room, smashed my desk to pieces because it was like this big flat desk with speakers on. Got a, ra- got a rack out the cupboard, put that between my legs, put my speakers on stands, and then I was kind of in the triangle and I'd worked it all out and it started to sound all right. And then I was like, okay, now... So I started to get into equipment. And then by that stage, I'd got low, I'd got quite a few clients because I'd tried to make friends with everybody I possibly could because I knew that was like how I was going to get tracks to come in. And so one of my clients, I was working, there's a guy called Kevin Metcalf who he was like the main mastering guy in London. He was in the late 90s, well, all through the 80s. He did David Bowie and KLF and all these massive artists. I mean, I'm doing him a disfavour just naming those two, but... He was he was massive mastering guy, and so he he just set up his own place and asked me if I wanted to come and work there. So that was another step where I was like, oh my god, I can't believe I'm going to work there. That's mental. This guy is insane. And so he was working for everybody, literally everybody that was like good music, like Underworld, or, I don't know, Orbital, whoever, if you're into dance music. So when I went there, that was a kind of start and again, because I was just suddenly around actual mastering engineers, which I hadn't been around before. So although I'd done all this work and, and you know, had number one records and stuff, like Sweet Like Chocolate I did there. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So cool. I did that at, at Battery. And then when I went to Soundmasters, suddenly I was with this proper engineer with all the kit like this, and he was teaching me everything. You know, I was learning all the secrets, just watching what he's doing, thinking, oh, he's not really doing much. And then, but it was the fact because he knew what he was doing, he wasn't doing much. And so I would copy his settings, and then I'd have all the drum and bass boys coming in. I learned how to cut vinyl there because he was a vinyl guy. So we had a lathe, so I learned how to cut vinyl, which was great because I was really into that. I used to stay all hours working there. And then at that point, I said I was going to keep it brief, but I have no <laughs> But at that point, uh, it got to about 2003, and I was, I've always been entrepreneurial, and I've kind of, and I was annoyed that I'd missed the first stage of the internet coming through. So, because I'd had a couple of friends who had made money by building sites and then selling them. So I was a bit like, that's annoying. And then I saw that you could upload tracks, like upload stuff to the internet. So at the time, this sounds really basic, but... So we built the first um, like uploader for eMasters, we called it, because it was Soundmasters and eMasters. And so we were the first people to build a website where you could upload your music to the, to the website and then we'd master it for 50 quid and then you could download it again. So although that now here <laughs> seems like it's everything, do you know what I mean? It's like that's how all my work comes through. But at that point it was like, oh, my God, we're going to make a fortune. What, we can give our services to everyone? And it was like we were so excited. Wow. We didn't make that much money. <laughs> but it was like that was kind of like the first thing and that kind of really kicked me into doing like, okay, I know how to master now really easily, but I actually, I'm really into the business side of stuff and I'm really into how we how are we making this bit of um, thing on the internet, how are we marketing it, what how are we running the business, all that stuff. So that became my next fascination because, you know, I, although I'm into making things sound good, it was like I wanted to know how to do that as well. So then I sort of, uh, Kevin and I had a bit of a disagreement as businesses do because uh, I was his partner on that business. So then I had to start again on my own. So I had no equipment. I had my clients, but I had no equipment. So then I was bouncing around stu- other people's studios, which was horrendous. And I kind of had to start again. So I built a studio at home because I was, cause I'm, a, I'm into kit and geekiness. So I built this ridiculously over-the-top studio at home. 
And I started to work from there. I borrowed some speakers from a friend, some NS802 Nautiluses, started to buy some kit and then built up a load of my own clients again, which was cool. But it was, but at that time, it was like 2008, 2009 when I, when I started on my own, which wasn't a great time. And so that was a real worry. I just had a baby. I'd had no money coming in. So it was like, fuck, what am I going to do? So I had to dig deep, phone my clients, get some work get the ball rolling, get going again. So I got myself up to a level. And then um, I thought, I'm really bored working on my own all day. I can't handle it. It's driving me mad. I've got two young kids at home. I've got enough money coming in, but so it's not, nothing to do with that. I've got my kit, but I'm just so bored. And I really, really missed the studio vibe. I missed being around people that were in the business. Because you're not talking to people. If you're on your own all day, as a lot of people know watching this, it can get really boring and you need you need someone there or you need anybody where you can just have a five minute break go and talk about normal things or discuss equipment or speakers or whatever you want to do you know so I spoke to Metropolis and so they were like yeah come out come and work here so then I went and worked uh, there for I ended up working there for for quite a few years like five years so all my clients were coming there it wasn't great because I had to give them some money which I didn't like doing obviously (laughs) But but it was fine, and it meant that I could be around studio people. It was at Metropolis, which was cool. Um, you know, there's brilliant mastering engineers there, so I could go and look at their notes and see what EQ settings they're using, because that's the kind of guy I am. <laughs> and uh, you know, and check out how to how are they mastering records? Because I knew how Kevin was mastering records, and I knew how a few other people were mastering. But you're all kind of on your own a lot of the time. I'm not the sort of person. I, I'm I'm kind of too far down the line to watch YouTube on mastering videos. It's not a hobby that I'd want to do because anybody on there isn't the people that I want to follow. Like if Chris Geringer's on there, I'm watching that because I want to see what settings he's using. I'm zooming in on his thing to see what's going on. But anybody else isn't on. I'm I, you know I don't want to. I'm not. In, I haven't got as much interest in that, in what they're doing. So when I was at Metropolis, I could do that. That was great. So I kind of did that for a while, and then. Um, Got bored of that again because it was just sort of going in. So I then thought I'd really like to set my own place up and then and do the whole business side of things. Like I said, I'm really into that. And I, I've been doing YouTube since 2009. So when I had that when I had that moment where it was like a dip down, where I left Soundmasters, fell out with Kevin, left Soundmasters, and I was like scrapping around, that was when I saw YouTube and thought, okay, I'm going to have to get on YouTube because then people will know that I'm still in the industry because otherwise, where are they going to see me? I'm going to be sitting in my house with my equipment, but no one's going to know me. So I started doing videos and started telling people what I was doing. And then when I went to Battery to uh, Soundmasters with Kevin, I was then learning from pros. And I thought, well, where's the pros on YouTube? Like I've just said, there wasn't any. And And so I was like, well, who's going to teach me the actual stuff? Like, there's people on there talking about it, but they're not going to teach me what I want to know. So then I was thinking, okay, well, people will probably want that from me. So then I was giving out as much information about what I was doing, you know, to say, this is how I EQ, and you don't have to have the needles moving. Like, things like that, people get the hump about. You don't have to have the needles moving when you compress because you're just using it for the vibe and the sound of the compressor, which people know, but it's like 2009, there was no one sort of saying it. So it's like... That, that encouraged me to then do more and more. And I didn't have a great deal of followers because I was 
talking about quite high-end things and there's obviously only a very small amount of people that are yeah. interested in that. So as I so I was always doing that when I was at Metropolis as well and then I was sort of showing people the cutting lathe and stuff and um, I you know I thought I was doing a lot but I was doing like one video a month it was like ridiculous but in my head I was really busy doing my <laughs> YouTube channel <laughs> which is an absolute joke now yeah, compared to on. the amount of content I do now but at the time, I was I was busy mastering as well and doing other things. So when I went to Metropolis, I came out and then I was like, right, I build my own place. I'll build up the YouTube channel. I enjoy doing that. And I started getting into my assistant came to work with me, Matt, who still works with me, um, probably I think it's about five years ago. And I said to him, I don't really want to do courses and stuff. I quite like just doing it on YouTube. And then he was like, no, no, come on, you should because it's like you know you can you could do it easy and i was like yeah the old the old classic those who can't teach i said yeah but everyone will just think i haven't got any mastering work and all i'm doing is like flogging my knowledge and he's like shut up it's not matter so i was because he had just come out of uh, acm so he was like well what are you talking about there's loads of guys that are there and i'd rather know your information how do you master stuff so i started showing him how to master he didn't actually have any interest actually in mastering <laughs> but i was boring him to death and then i realized by teaching him that I actually, there was a process that I actually used without realising what that process was, which was really weird to me. So then I was like, all right, okay, yeah, maybe there is a structure to what I do. Because if you ever speak to anybody that's from kind of old school mastering, you didn't, you haven't got a computer with, with lines on in front of you, as in waveforms, you were just using your ears and you just do everything by ear. So everything's like, it's like playing the piano without sheet music. That's, that's what I'm doing with equipment. I'm listening to it, vibing off the EQ settings and whatever, and I'm not really thinking, okay, I'm doing that for that reason and the, the sort of scientific reason why. So when Matt came along and was bringing in that kind of, well, you're doing that for this reason, I'm like, all right, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I am doing that to lift the vocal. But I didn't actually, I'd never thought of that beforehand or I'd never thought of, okay, I'm putting on that wide bit of the top to get some air or I'm doing this in the stereo all the things that I sort of talk about now on Instagram and YouTube is like things that were just natural and didn't really I didn't think about it and I don't think you do if you're working every day you're just kind of getting on with it and doing it you haven't really got time to dissect it so after dissecting it I got into doing courses and then people liked the courses so I did more and then I've just carried on and pushed Instagram and I just really enjoy doing it all the time it's just the feedback and the I don't know it's just fun do you have someone helping you with Instagram because you are quite prolific with shorts and reels and stuff and not like I can't even get one a week <laughs> so I've got a full-time editor and I've got uh, Matt that's full-time that does everything basically um, and then I've got uh, I've got an, a guy that does mastering with me, Stuart. He's another mastering engineer. And then I've got Zoe, who runs all the sort of customer service side of things. And she's my PA, so she does all my bookings and things like that. Um, so, yeah, that's it, really. This little s small core team of to help me out. Cool. Because there's no way on earth. It's not even the fact I'd get it done. The fact is I wouldn't get it done because I'm too... Um, I'm too... ADHD going all over the place, going mental about like new things all the time. So it, I just wouldn't get anything done. If I'm left to my own devices, nothing happens. So I, I'm always best if I've got someone saying, right, you need to do a short now or you need to do this or we're filming that. So that's usually Matt who's just guiding me and telling me what I need to be doing and sort of getting the ball rolling. And so then uh, we, okay, off we go. 
the enviable position. Oh, I, I think that's that. what's hard for people like myself and Paul. We have so much to do just to get clients is a job in itself in and amongst all this other stuff we're yeah. supposed to be doing to create a brand. But uh, My advice on that is because I've been through that and I've been, as I say, in 2008 when I had to just dig deep and get back into literally uh, like I was starting off. But obviously I had all the pe- things I'd worked on and I did have some clients, but people soon forget about you and they soon move on to other people if they, if they don't speak to you quick enough. But it's like you have to just really zone in and focus on one thing. That's the problem that I have personally because I've got too many ideas all the time and I want to do everything. And so it's like I've, I've knocked TikTok on the head. I've knocked all these different... I did a podcast, started a podcast in 2018, knocked it on the head uh, because my, I just, you just can't be good at everything. And so if you want to be a mastering in, I always say this on my channel, it's like everyone thinks, okay, I'm going to do mixing, I'm going to produce stuff, I'm going to mix it, I'm going to master it, then I'm going to do all the marketing, then I'm going to do... And it's like, what are you doing? You're never going to be good at anything when you're splitting your attention across too many things. You need to put 100% into one thing, and then once that's, once that's going, that's when you can do the next thing and then carry on with that because this one's going. Otherwise, nothing works. I've done it myself so many times with a million businesses that I've started up on the side and then my mastering's affected and then this is affected and it's just like... So to answer your question, it's like anybody out there that is wanting to do anything within music, you've got to fo- laser focus on one thing. Ed Sheeran said it in a video ages ago where... He was just like, I just write all the time. I'm a songwriter. He's not the producer. He's not the mix engineer. He'll be there and he'll have his input, I'm sure. But he's not, you have to get good. You have to be, I spent 20 years getting good at mastering before I could move into something else because it wasn't because I had, it was because I had to. I had to earn a living and I was earning a living as a mastering engineer. So fortunately, I, I had to get, I had to carry on. It's very easy these days, like we said earlier, with the amount of distractions and the amount of things you can do on the internet to get really distracted, try and be on every single channel, try and do everything yourself, and you literally can't. So how does your average week look split up between YouTube uh, making courses and mastering? So I try and focus my mastering on like three days a week. So then I'm solid just doing that. Um, and then Stuart does the other couple of days for his stuff and his clients. It's kind of always how it's worked in mastering. You always had days off in between your main days. So you would always have, you'd always work day on, day off. So that's kind of, that was kind of bad in itself because it gave me time to come off to start doing other stupid ideas, like we said about me uh, managing <laughs> MSN at one point. <laughs> but... So you kind of think, well, I've got two days free. What else am I doing? Is that intentional to to rest your ears? Uh, It's supposed to be, yeah. But because going back in time when I started, you'd be working, because you had to use the same studio all the time, I guess you do anyway, but you would have your time and the other engineer would have their time in the studio. So you'd work day on, day off with that engineer so that you'd work a long day and then you'd have the next day off to rest and then you'd work another long day. But really, even when I was at Metropolis... I was working day on day off, but people like Stuart Hawks and that, they're so busy, they can they just work all day for like six to eight, five days a week. And he comes up from Brighton every day to London as well. So he is an animal. So is it, is, is, is it true what many people have told me, again, like M included, that, you know, if you want to get into this gig, like, be prepared to, like, give up all of your time because this industry is yeah. very fast-paced. It is just like some 
and he was talking about Skip and stuff like that. And he was like, he'll just phone me up and be like, right, Em, I've got this. And he's like, Polly wants it done there and then. And I was speaking to a mastering engineer this week and he was like dealing with a, a big rapper in Turkey. And I think they agreed to do the song next week and his rival rapper or whatever had released a song that day. And he was like, right, I need it done now. And he was like, well, I, Paul, I either had to do it or the client would just go elsewhere. But if you're working with any kind of record label, you're just one little piece of the cog. So you have to be make sure that you're always their cog, basically, because they've got a million options. And so unless you are Spike Stent, then you can say and do whatever you want. But if you're not, then you are literally at the beck and call of the label. You've got to drop everything. You know, that was the only good thing about having a studio at home is that I could be in my underpants at three in the morning because <laughs> someone in America wanted a track mastered. But it's like, you know, I'd, I'd get the call next to my bed and be laughing <laughs> and straight downstairs to do it. You know, it's like, oh, God. But, you know, that is that is definitely it. I mean, that's the whole reason why I was fell in love with MSN, should we say. <laughs> I know he's going to watch it and enjoy that bit. But... Because he was 19 or something when I when I started chatting to him. I did um, the chipmunk stuff with him when he first started. And so that's what was so exciting about him because he was so passionate and he was so into it like no one you've ever seen in your life. So he, I knew, which is why I started managing him in 2000, about three years later, because I knew he was going to be big. I knew he was going to get where he wanted to go because he was a million percent dedicated. He'd say to me, like, I don't need a girlfriend. They're just going to get in the way of me becoming a mix engineer. So it's like his whole life was sitting, doing mixing, talking to people about gear, finding out what's going on with this, what's going He was just obsessive. And that's the way you've got to be. I use his example so many times to young producers because it's like, yeah, he had mates that were Skepta and JME. That helped. But it wouldn't have mattered with him because he was so... You've spoken to him on here, and he's just into yeah. it, a million percent into it. And I was like that when I started. I'm not as much into it like that now, but I was the same. I was obsessed, completely obsessed. Wanted to know everything about everything and wanted to know everybody in the industry so that I could be chatting to people and I'd always be out at gigs, listening to people, chatting to people, getting in with bands, getting in with artists, just chat, you know, just all my hours. I remember cutting vinyl for... Adam F on Christmas Day. Fine. Okay, I'll be in. And then uh, there I am. It's like, who cares? It's what you want to do. When you want to when you want to do something that much and you enjoy something that much, whatever it is in life, you're gonna just it's not a job, is it? You just love it. I think it. the question now this will be a good question for me because being a family man, and again I know you're a family man as well, is was it difficult for you when the kids came and needing to kind of did you feel like you had to tone them that element and kind of prioritise your time and have a better kind of work-life balance? Or was that quite a difficult thing? I find it difficult because I feel I feel like I'm really old, <laughs> even though I'm only 34. It's like, you know, my kids are like four and nine and it's like I'm trying to get into it and, you know, I'm speaking to other guys and they're, again, like, um, like devote. And he's like, Paul, if you're going to get into this, like, you need to devote yourself to it. So how was, was that hard for you? To, you know, to when the kids came along and trying to find that work-life balance? Um, I think that was the period, like I said, where I had started up my own little thing at home. So it was easier to have the kids there, but they would come in all the time, which was cool. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't mind that. They're my kids. But um, it meant that I had to change what I did. So I'd master some stuff in the evening or I would 
master stuff when they were asleep or if my wife needed to go out and do something I'd have to sort of look after them and I just balanced it that way really I had to but it meant that all my time was either kids or or mastering which was fine because obviously I like both but it's that was the point where you then go that's all I'm doing uh, I'm not even seeing anybody in the industry so as soon as they got to an age where they were at school then I could go right okay let me get into another studio so that I can talk to people you don't have the, actually you don't have the problem because you've got the internet you just network like hell online I was just going to ask what's your advice for networking I think you've just got to get in the conversation with people and you've got to be not annoying but persistent so you're leaving nice comments on their posts you're when they want when they're doing something you're appreciative of what they're doing like I'd be very um, selective of who those people are and whether you can get to those people but artists and stuff yeah I mean it's just a matter of making friends isn't it really and helping them out and saying I'll help you with that or I'll do some is there anything that I can do that isn't based so for example if I was a younger guy getting into it now and I didn't have any outgoings I'd go and do social media for someone because you've just said okay I, I would love someone to do my social media well someone comes in for two days a week and works with you for two days they get involved in this podcast. They get involved in sorting out your social... They do the editing and they do a bit of that. And in return, you show them how to mix stuff and how to cut stuff up and all that kind of stuff. And then also they could be then DMing people and getting a few sort of client things on the go for you that you haven't got time to do because you're too busy working. So it's like that kind of thing. They're doing it for free because they want to get in. And you're giving back to them because they're getting a little bit of something out of it. I've had that too. Shay, who... Um, does mix work for me now he started off uh he was younger he really keen he came over my house that period where i was setting up and he would sit around my house with my wife and my little tiny kids and he would work for next to nothing and he would be getting the tracks ready for me to master he'd then do the editing afterwards and so it made my life so much easier and he was getting a bit of experience and now he's a like head lecturer at ACM. So he's kind of moved into an area that helps him out. So, And he does loads of mix work for me as well. I've always wanted to ask the advice of a, mix, uh, a mastering engineer in regards to the politics, the political side of it. So, and I obviously like mixers all kind of have egos, right? Like you need to have a little bit of an ego, right, to be successful in this industry but again i know a lot of guys are humble oh yeah well, mastering engineers are ridiculous egos <laughs> so like how do you deal with um any times where maybe you've dealt with like big mixers or even maybe just like mixers on their way up and you know there's kind of certain th maybe issues in the mix and you've kind of felt because I, I i've spoken to many mastering engineers and they'll say paul there are times where i'm just like i'm not a miracle worker you need to go back to the mix and you need to adjust that that or that then I'll be able to do that, that, or that. Is that something that I doubt probably happens a lot to you, especially with big industry mixers? But I mean, how um, how do you deal with that political side of it, and you know, trying to you know not piss off people? Because I've told many people have said to me, Paul, whatever you do, don't burn bridges. <laughs> I know it's hard for you, Paul, yeah, but yeah, don't, well, that's true. don't burn bridges. Yeah, that is true. It depends. A hundred percent depends on what your relationship's like with the person. If you're working with someone who you know really well, you can turn around to them and say, send me a version with the um, bass down a touch and I'll see if I can get it a, a bit different for you. Not better, different. You are dealing with egos. You're also like, you're only a mastering engineer, you're not a mix engineer. And if the mix engineer is good 
and he's involved with the demo before and he's involved with the artist and they've sat there and worked it out and they've wanted that sound in the mix, then who am I to tell them that's wrong? I can, I can adjust it and give them my version or I can say, okay, I can make your version a lot nicer um, or sweeter or whatever you want me to do to it. But it's not really my job to get in the way of their vision, really. It's my job to sort of show off that vision better. The Working Audio Tools podcast is brought to you in association with our friends at DistroKid for all of your musical distribution needs. Don't forget, you can't just upload your songs to Amazon, Spotify, iTunes or Tidal. You have to go through a music distribution service. There are many out there, but DistroKid is the one that Paul and myself use. They don't take any of your royalties. You keep 100% of the streaming revenue that you earn. For just $1.92 a month or $22.99, a year, you can upload unlimited songs. Your lyrics can be found in Google and other places. You get the blue Spotify verified checkmark and you can create royalty splits between yourselves and fellow contributors. You also get access to the new DistroKid iPhone app for editing and uploading songs and accessing your statistics on the move. There are plenty of other tools available on DistroKid. We'll go through those in another section. And in regards to, say, um, a lot of like people that are starting out again watching this podcast, are there any kind of big kind of no-nos in regards to like mixing that, you know, really helps a mastering engineer? Uh, are there kind of, obviously this could be a pure massive, massive, massive answer, but are there any like kind of maybe kind of like core things that you would say in a mixer, please, if you do kind of make sure you do these kind of maybe core things then it will make a mastering engineer's job a lot easier. The first obvious one is a limiter. Give the mastering engineer the unlimited version and the limited version so that you've got... I can hear what the record label have heard and the artist have heard because you will have the mix engineer will have given their ref with the limiter on. So I, I want to hear that because obviously I want to get it better than that. So craftily, I want to work against that. And then if they're a good mix engineer, you can't get it better and that's really annoying because <laughs> you want to put you want to be able to go look how good I've made it for you and there and it's like and they're the hardest ones to do because you'll go around for an hour and a half two hours because you're desperate to prove yourself and then by the end of it you're like yeah it was better wasn't it when they just their mix was already better I'm just gonna have to send it back like that and then you're gutted because you're like I'm rubbish what am I I'm the worst person in the world but that's kind of what you learn that's kind of what makes you a decent mastering engineer because unless you get to that point where you know that it was better before, you've just given them a really shoddy like version of what they've given you and you're never going to work with them again. So it's kind of knowing when it's good and when it's bad, that's the key to being a good mastering engineer. So it's knowing I only have to put a little bit on and it's so much better. And it's that's all it needed. It just needed a little bit of top and it needed the level being right, and then it's done. And not being and not being upset about that, and not thinking, well, I haven't done enough, I haven't compressed it, I haven't got the bass. And I, that's the classic amateur mistake, is to do far too much than you should. One, just coming back to the other point, sorry, another thing that I would say is, most people, if they're going to a good mastering studio, so someone that can hear the low end, and no one can really hear the low end in speakers in headphones as, as well as you i personally think i'm not a headphone guy totally but i can hear it and feel it in speakers so it's like uh, i and i my I, my specialist subject is low end 
getting it tight and right, you know. So that's kind of because that's the main problem that most people are going to have when they come to you. They just can't hear the low end or they put too much on or whatever. So I would always say, leave it on. If you've got, don't put a massive cut on the bottom and stuff. Leave it on, take the limiter off, and then I've got something to sculpt. Because if you've got no bottom end and you've got to try and add it on, it's just going to be a woofy, horrible noise. Where if I can get hold of it, compress it, EQ it, cut it, then I'm in business because I can really get it to bite and to, to pump through the speaker. Whereas if it's all cut off, I've got nothing to do, have I? I've got nothing to work That's on. That's interesting. That's interesting because yeah. I've had a mix engineer tell me they'd rather have less bass so they can control it and put it in rather than having to. Engineer. Yeah. Yeah, what have you got to put in? If you've got no yeah, sub, yeah, totally. right? Yeah. What are you at? You're going to have to add a sub because there's no frequencies yeah. there to add. And if you just push those frequencies, it's just going to be a, a like a, a woof sound. You're not going to get a nice, tight, punchy sub. It's good. I haven't got the sub there. You can't do anything. So I'd rather have it there and, and sort it out for them rather than them try and sort it out. And it's rubbish but if they're a decent mix engineer they're going to be able to hear their bass anyway and they're going to know what's right and what's wrong so you kind of have to judge that too and say and think to yourself well and that that again might take you a while if you don't know them because you're going to go around in circles trying to do this trying to do that and then thinking well actually yeah they knew what they were doing didn't they because it does actually sound really good before I, uh, I remember the first few tracks I sent you. I was um, I was mixing on my Neumann KH120s that go down to about 54 hertz. I didn't have a sub. I had no idea what was going on below 50 hertz. And every yeah. track that came back, the thing that stood out was this unbelievably sturdy, solid, tight, low end. And I thought, this is my guy. I like it. Yeah, well, that's kind of what I need to have, isn't it? Because if I can't do that, what can I do? Everyone can do mids. Yeah. You know, it's like everyone can do that, but not everyone can do low end because you haven't got the setup. What what makes a good mix engineer in your eyes? What do you look for in a mix engineer to be good? I think it's down to vibe for me. Like if they've got the track so that it's it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to be the flattest mix. Usually they're the most boring. Um actually letting things pop out the mix at the right time and having the focus working right is a good sounding mix to me something where um, the snare's hitting nice and it's complementing everything else. It's just the setup of the song and that they've, they've worked, they've thought about the song and thought about what it's supposed to be doing. So it's like it's following the focus point and it's bringing things in at the right times and not, you know, and having things sitting in the right places at the right times and then having those sounds crafted. And my favourite mixes are the ones that have got four sounds. Uh, but they're so good, those four sounds, that there's so much space in the mix and it sounds so big. Uh, but there's four sounds going on, like hip-hop, a lot of hip-hop stuff. It's just brilliant. It's got, like, just a few little things, a kick drum banging through, and it's just space. I can get it loud. I don't have to do too much to it, but it can still be loud because you can push into the spaces. Um, and it can be punchy because there's space there to make it punchy. So it's kind of like the less is more thing is all to me is a nice sounding mix that is just complementing itself all the way through and it's smooth and it, everything's doing what it should do. Toby, do you say that YouTube is maybe partly to blame for the for this whole you know, there's many like stereotypes that come on <laughs> on YouTube. We all know them. But a big stereotype I see a lot is you must, you must on your mix bus, you must high pass at 30 hertz. You must take out all the rumble. 
Is, is it things like that for you that maybe cause, you know, those issues where you get sent mixes and you're like, I've not really got much to work with. I know there's not much happening under, say, 30 hertz, but even obviously the way that the, the filter obviously encroaches up into the higher ranges from 30. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so would you normally say as a mixer um, to take off, like don't high pass your low end, just try and get it sounding as, as kind of great as you can and then that well, gives you more to play with? Yeah, exactly. If you start high passing at 30 hertz, for example, you're going to be taken away from the kick drum. So then suddenly you've got no whack in the bottom, even for a band, if you're taking off there. You want to have big low end. Sometimes also people mono the low end all the time as a golden rule. But there's actually times with, say, guitar music or acoustic music where it sounds nice when it's wide. So there's no like hard and fast rules for anything, really. It's just as a as a mix mastering engineer i'm just listening to what they've done listening to what kind of track it is what the feel of it is to then what it what i think it needs if i want to cut off the low end i might cut it off but i'm then thinking to myself well maybe it's that sort of track that is just want that woofy low end because when it's in a club it's going to sound really cool but is it that kind of track are they going to be playing it in a club where's it going what's it doing you know so Sometimes it's nice to have that conversation before you get into it to understand what they're doing. But you can usually tell from their reference master because everyone will send you a limited version these days. So you can kind of tell what they're going for from that and then you can take it there because they're probably only going to get it 80% of the way there and then you can just go, okay, I'll do a little bit here and there and I'll, I'll get them that feel. I think that's a great opportunity to have a listen to the tracks that we did in last week's episode. We don't need to play the whole thing. We can just do a verse and a chorus. But Streaky, we'd love to get your feedback. Brutal. Yeah, mate, if you, to, if you need to be brutal, that's the whole point of it. But I think what we're looking for is looking, because, again, you are you know that genre better than us. And I think it's, it's better you know to that? come from like a mixing, a mastering engineer's point of view. You know what I mean? Where you could actually say, look, me as a mastering What's engineer, that? I've... It's really bad. It's really bad. I'm not going to say a word. Paul, I've, I've, not, I've not told you this, Paul, but on the, uh, on, the, on the few tracks I've sent Streaky, I've asked him in every email for feedback on the mix, and he's given nothing. And then I looked on his website one day, and I saw, ah, mix consultation, £500 a time. I was like, that's why he gives me nothing. All right, so first up, Streaky has listened to Paul's mix, and uh, we're going to hear Streaky's generous and kind feedback or brutal <laughs> destruction. Whatever it is. Yeah. Which way is Whatever. it going? Uh, after crying for a while, <laughs> I... <laughs> and, uh, and repairing the speakers, I thought the only problem... Right. So the mids and that were all right at the top, but I would say it, it's difficult. Until I get stuck into something, yeah, I can't yeah, totally. really give a massive judgment. Um, but first listen, I'd be trying to get that bass really tighter because there wasn't, it's, it's a little bit muddy and murky and it needs to be a little bit, um, needs to have more space in it, needs to be tighter and bigger. So I'd be 
pumping a bit in and then compressing it a bit and then doing some cuts and things to try and get it punching through the speakers. And then what I normally find is when you get the low end right, the rest of it falls into place really easily. So I spend most of my time on that, I would, for this track. And I think then the mids would come into play nicely because by the times you just put a little bit of compression and limiting on, that's gonna. there's quite a lot going on that's quite spiky in the yeah. tops and in the sides. And I think once you start... Um, when it, when it starts getting limited, that will s- stop that from happening being so spiky. And then it, I think a, just a very tiny bit of high top, I thought the mids sounded okay. And then I would just make sure that low end was um, tighter and bigger. I'm happy with that. Yeah. Could have been way worse. Way worse. Help? I thought it was where I get fucking lynched here. <laughs> I thought it was where I get speared. Yeah, no, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> there you go. Not bad, right? No, I'm happy that with bad. that. I'm not bad. I'll take not bad. Yeah. I'd, I'd take that as well, Paul. <laughs> I mean, it's not one of those ones where I'd be like, oh my God, yeah. I've got to send this back because it's just ridiculous. I don't even want to work on it. Give them the money back. I don't even want to come near it. <laughs> no, no, that's the best. It's not one of that, those. No, that's probably the best feedback I've had all year. <laughs> I, mean, I wouldn't give you your money back. <laughs> I'll take that. Yeah. Ed, have I ever given your money back? <laughs> no, no, you've not. You've not. <laughs> There's always time. <laughs> All right, next up, feedback on my mix. This artist is called Sydney Joe Jackson, London based okay. singer. Cut the tension. Cut the tension with a with a knife. Eh? <laughs> My God, you're terrified. <laughs> but it's all a learning experience. That's why we're here. Yeah. Uh, with that, I thought the vocal was too loud, and so then I start. And I thought there was not enough subs in it. They were my first thoughts. So then I put some subs in just briefly on an EQ, and um, and then the the vocal came like this, and the subs helped it better. So as soon as I put more low end in. It, it stopped the the vocal sounding so hot, so fronty, and then it sounded all right. And I think that if then that was all compressed, so once you've put the bass in and then it's all kind of put together a little bit more with a bit of glue, I think it would be all right. Sounds the quality sounds really nice in the top end. That's interesting. Um, right, thank you for that. Uh, I mean, I, I have one sub in my room, which uh, is going to turn into two when the PSIs arrive, and uh, Sydney wanted vocals. Yeah, louder than I'd have, I'd have put them. So, yeah, you definitely need two subs. I think M said that yeah, in his yeah. thing, but it's true. He did, yeah, stereo, yeah, yeah. it's true because they basically turn into speakers. In effect, that's the whole kind of my thought process on it. I've got subs underneath these Neumanns, and then otherwise you've just got like one. And like I said earlier, sometimes you need wide in the low end. Not everyone agrees with that, but you, sometimes you do. It sounds good, so it just means the speakers are moving like this rather than these moving and then this is going like that. It's like, I don't know, it oh, just works it, better. It, it absolutely makes sense. So actually, I've actually yeah. got M to thank for spending another few grand on PSI. <laughs> exactly, I told you, you don't want to speak to him. <laughs> He's a nightmare. 
All right. Well, that feedback wasn't anywhere near as brutally destructive <laughs> as I thought it was going to be. So uh, excellent. But thank you yeah, very thank much you for giving us your professional mastering feedback. The Working Audio Tools podcast is brought to you in association with our friends at DistroKid for all of your musical distribution needs. For a little bit more, $39.99 a month, you can have two artists on your roster, which includes everything just mentioned. Additionally, synced lyrics in Apple Music, further streaming analytics statistics. You can create a customizable record name. Mine, for example, is Ed Thorne Rhythm and Records. And you can customize release dates, pre-order dates, iTunes pricing, and again, much more. Now, if you're an artist manager or a record label, the Ultimate Bundle gives you up to 100 artists for just $89.99 a year. And you get one terabyte of instant file sharing, which is useful, but also contact information for thousands of playlist curators on Spotify. This is really useful so you can pitch your artist music to playlist curators around the world only available in the Ultimate Bundle from DistroKid. Now, being a man with your vast experience, having worked with hardware for so long, do you feel that you still need, now the, the word is need, do you need analog and mastering these days or do you think you can get like high, just as high quality in the box or do you feel like you still need a bit of outboard or is it like track dependent? Well, I've been everywhere, obviously, from a, a gear perspective, and I was 100% in the box forever. Just because I learned that way, I was always on uh, analog gear. Analog, so I knew the settings that I liked, I knew the gear, I knew the sound, easy to get a quick result, so I was always doing that. Then when I started doing courses, I had to be in the box because everyone I'm teaching is in the box, and no-one's got loads of kit, so it's like... Okay, I need to learn software. I got massively into plugins. Again, going back to it, he's like, no, leave him. He's getting too much publicity. <laughs> but talking to him, us going off on one about kit. And so I went basically totally in the box, which is cool because I was able, I think you're able to do a lot of other things that you can't do in the analog world, uh, especially with the FabFilter Pro Q3 and things like that, and MS EQing and um different things you can do you can do quite a lot outside i found that i was finding mastering a little bit boring doing that from the fact of turning knobs is why i wanted to be a sound engineer is why i wanted to work in a studio in the first place because i saw the big mixing desk and i wanted to turn knobs and geek out so i love having equipment because i can turn them listen to them and it just sounds good and there's certain equipment like, I've recently only just bought a load of new stuff because I was like, I really want... I've, I've got... I was hybrid for ages then, so I went all in the box. Then I went hybrid and had certain bits of kit that I've always had sort of sitting about and in the rack, and then I started using those. Recently, I've bought some equipment that you can't get the same vibe in the box. So I'm massively into hybrid still. So for me, I bought the... Uh, Fairchild, the UTA yeah, yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. And their little box that goes underneath, which does like uh, feed forward mm -hmm. and feedback um, compression and stuff. But it's more for the fact, like I said earlier, about not letting the needles move and just using it for vibe. And you just punch it in and suddenly it's posh. <laughs> You've got like everything has got depth. It's just As a company, soft. I can see why you'd love that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's like, it's just nice. So you put it in and 
something that I'd forgotten because I haven't used enough analog recently is that you don't have to do as much work with an EQ when you've got analog equipment because you put it in and just the sound of the equipment EQs the track weirdly. So like putting that in, for example, gives it a low end that's a little bit tighter and, and sounds like different. It's not great for every single track, but you put it in a lot of the times and you're just going through it and it sounds lovely. And I've got the the Terry EQ that I bought as well. So I don't know if you've seen yeah, those, seen they look insane. So I bought I bought it because I I was all I've got a Neumann compressor there, which is off the old cutting desks. And that was a favourite of Kevin Metcalf's, who was I told you is brilliant. You put that on a track, suddenly the mids pop out and every and the snares go really tight and everything sounds really tight, 70s, 80s kind of uh, vinyl sound. So you put that in and it's like that was always he had that on everything. So I loved that and I had the EQ version of it at Metropolis and the EQ version is what he's put into that Terry. So having that EQ in there, I'm like, oh, there's that sound again that I love. There's that EQ sound that's got, there's that thing that I always look, listen for and try and do it with stuck plugins and stuff, can't get it. And there it is, just one tweak away. So I'm in again. And then it's got some nice low cuts and it sounds different. It's got stuff that you can't, Necessary. You probably can get stuff in the box. You can pretty much do everything in the box, but not as instantly and not as accessible as turning the knobs in front of you. So for me, it's like I rebought. I did. I sold my Maselec multi-band compressor because I was using the um, Pro MB, but I just love the sound of the Maselec gear. So it's like, okay, I'll have that. I need that. You know, I need that back in my life because it's so nice. So it's those sounds that I've built up. How close did the acoustical one get? Because I know you did the video on it, and I know, like, you... was. Uh, if you were to give it a percentage, right, how close did Ivory get? Would you say it was 80%, 70%, or was it was it pretty close? Totally off my head. I can't remember. You know, the whole problem, the whole difference is, is that when you're using analog gear, you're going through converters. Yes, yeah, that's a good point. So it's always affecting the sound. So your converters are making a massive difference to what you're doing. Your leads are making a massive difference. So there's loads of variables when you've got analog equipment that makes it sound different to how they've sampled it. Like they will have sampled theirs, I'm guessing, and modeled it off of certain other, I think they used to use Apogees, but I think they've obviously gone more full on than that. But, you know, the Prism's got a sound. They've all got a different HD. So yeah, it was a sound, it was a sound. And it was close, I think. I can't remember. It was a while ago I did that comparison, but I've done comparisons recently with like Sontech and that as well. And they are close, but it's obviously uh, what sound you get used to. And then you can then put that sound on someone's track. When you hear it, you go, oh, that's what I need to do. I like that sound. There it is. Do you have the Lavrys? So you kind of, that's why people don't. Uh, I've got the Quintessence. Is that the gold, which is is that the the gold one? Yeah, like the one that everybody talks yeah. about, yeah. Yeah, well, they, I think you, they might be talking about the A to D, which is the one on the way yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I, yeah, I kind of um, got scared of having that one because if it goes wrong, you've the repair bill's horrendous yeah. and it's going to take forever to get back. So I got rid of my A to D. I actually like the... I did a test between that and the Hilo, and I actually like the... I blind tested it, and the Hilo was there you know what i mean it was like okay because i wasn't using it for a lot of people use the lavery to to clip it yeah, on the yeah. way in from your analog equipment but i don't really do that because i've always i used to do it years ago but with an apogee which was quite nice we had like a vibe but 
I always found there's so much distortion and everyone's tracks sound so crispy and stuff these days that putting that more distortion on from the lavery, I didn't really like it. So I'd rather, try, I'm trying, I'm always trying to get things clean and trying to get things to sound posh and nice and fresh and because that's what people want from me because that's the gear I've got. For me, the main difference with analogue and digital is regardless, I mean, I don't know the acoustic stuff so well, the fact it takes 50 gigabytes to download <laughs> one plug-in can fuck off, quite frankly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, CPU's mental. Crazy, yeah. But a, a lot of the other stuff, like even the UAD stuff, the difference between the digital and the plug-in, sorry, the digital and the analogue is there's just a weight and a depth of sound, and I get chastised for this, partly by Paul as well. But I, had, what, what do you think about that? Do you feel there's something tangible, intangible, a depth, a weight to analogue? Over the plugins? I like to think there is, and then sometimes I'll blind test it and prove myself wrong. <laughs> right. So I say to you, Ed, all the time, <laughs> do you know blind what I mean? test. It's like one of those things. It's like, I'll do it, but you have to blind test everything because even just putting things in and out you'll, you'll, makes you think differently. Yeah, so true. So you have to shut, you have got to shut your eyes and then just A, B it with the, I use that metric A, B thing all the time just to, okay, how's it sound, how's it sound? And it's like, I do that with everything. Cables, USB cables, everything I can possibly do it with so that I know length of cables. So I know, okay, I know I'm right. But I need to know, you know what I mean? I need to know. I can't have have something coming into my rack and and not know what it sounds like. It's not coming in the rack for ages. It's going to have to stay out. Like, I always think with people when they've got plugins, it's like, use five plugins or four plugins or something forever. Get know them like the back of your hand and then bring something in occasionally, but don't use it on a session because you don't know it yet. Like bring it in slowly, try it, listen to it. What's it doing? What does it do in this situation? Because it's like most good mastering engineers are only using a few little bits of gear or maybe one EQ or one EQ and a, com- a limiter or something. So it's kind of like you've got to know what something sounds like because you've got to work fast as well, yep, haven't you? totally. You can't be working on a track for three days. If you're a mastering engineer, you've got to do it in a half an hour to an hour and know that what you've done is going to be brilliant because they're on the phone wanting it back. So do you subscribe to the school that more expensive sca- uh, cables are better? No, not necessarily more expensive. Certain cables don't have to be expensive, but they just sound different. Yeah, that's a good word. Yeah, different. And more enjoyable to me. It's, they're not better or worse. They're just not as good as the ones I've already got in. So they're not, they're no good. Do you know what I mean? I'm looking for better all the time because all these little tiny things add up. And so I'm always in a search for what's slightly better than the next thing or what's. So that's an internal thing I've always done ever since Chris Parmenides back in the day taught me about sound. And then I had, you know, and then I've got friends in the industry that, are exactly the same. We're all as geeky as each other. So it's like, I found this cable, check it out. And then it's like, all oh, right, cool. <laughs> and then you get it. Like, I've got a load of cord gear now. I've going seen back that, to MSN, I noticed that. These seems to be a thing. <laughs> yeah, I've got that. So that's like five yep. grand headphone amp. It's like, <laughs> fuck. But it does sound really good. So it's really annoying because then you get it in and you're like, oh my God, yeah, it's good that. These headphones, for example, they're really nice. If anyone's looking for headphones, they're really nice, but they're stupid. They're mental, aren't they, money? They're like two grand or something. See, from a mastering engineer's point of view with analog, is the slight variances, um, is that something that like you guys worry about or is that like part of the 
The Cardiff Sullivan. Yeah, but that's part. That is part of the sound. It's because it's never straight. I... It's never. It, and that's what makes it nice sometimes because that little shift in the left and right in the top end can make a massive difference to everything being straight and clean. It's it's very similar to, you know, when you listen to old music, like funk music or something, and everyone's kind of drifting and out of time and stuff, but it's got a vibe. And that's a similar thing where everything now is very quantized and very sort of straight. And you can really hear the difference of the swing because you're so used to hearing quantized stuff. And I think everyone's so used to hearing really clean digital stuff that's very precise that little shift can make a big difference, especially when it comes to tubes and stuff. They're all the sound of those and the way that they change the sound. That's something that I've kind of started to realise about like analogue, because I did the whole digital versus analogue stuff, but I've realised that the thing that makes analogue analogue is the imperfections. Digital, if you do an analogue emulation, they'll make sure that the left and right on a compressor is bang on, where when you get an analogue yeah. compressor, Again, there could be times where, again, you've got that shift in left and right, which is giving you more of a side signal. And again, even just the left and right of the compression is slightly off and it could give itself a sound. It's imperfect. And I think that's what I'm starting to realise. Well, and you might, also, you might also do an EQ setting wrong and you haven't realised until you're putting it down and then you're like, oh, it sounds right, though, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> or a lot of the times with analogue where you literally have got it in bypass <laughs> and then you think you've made it sound good. <laughs> And then you think to yourself, what am I doing in my life? Just don't bother. <laughs> I've done that with I've done that with like clients in and it's so embarrassing when you're turning and going, yeah, like vibing, making out that you're doing something really cool and you realise you've got it in bypass and hope that they notice. <laughs> have you have you ever had like a what if you were to say like a humbling moment in your career that's made you kind of sit back and go, could be embarrassing or it could just be something where you've kind of just been a big fuck up or whatever, but you've just went, know what? I'm glad that bad experience happened because I learned so much from it. Have you ever got like too many to mention? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the worst, the most embarrassing time was, so when I worked with Kevin, we started to do 5.1 mastering, but he decided he didn't want to spend money out on the speakers, so we did it on NS10s. <laughs> Like and I was the one that was going to be doing it. He wasn't because he just was like, "Oh fuck it, I'm too old. I can't be bothered with all that." You you do it. You're the youngster. You do it. So I was like, "Yeah, fuck it, go on." Then we had we basically he bought three of everything, right? So we had a, a, a desk where it had three Maslek EQs, three GML EQs, three G it like spent a fortune. We had a we were the only ones I think. I don't know. We, there's probably someone else, but we had Maslek console that was a. a it was one of those 5.1 Masolet consoles with like, it was just mental, the kit. So he bought all that kit, but then the speakers we were using were NS10s. It was like, what are we doing? <laughs> but we had a massive set. So he did loads of Queen stuff. So he was like Queen's engine, you know, mastering engineer. So they came in to do their 5.1 and I'm there with Roger Taylor. And it's like, this is the most embarrassing moment of my, because nothing worked. None of the equipment worked. I'm under the desk trying to plug it all up whilst they're sitting there. And that's a quite a big climb, yeah, isn't massive, it, when you've yeah. got them in. And you're just thinking, eat me up. <laughs> I just want it to work and sound good and I'll just do it. And I'll and then I'm like worked on Queen stuff and I'm like, you know, it's all great. 
<laughs> it was just horrendous from start to finish. You know where every if something's going to go wrong, it goes wrong. The leads were falling out. The power wasn't going on. The speakers sounded crap. The, they're saying to me, so have you lined up the sub to blah, 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 because they're really technical. And I didn't have a clue what they're talking about. And I'm just <laughs> thinking, well, I've just moved the sub under the desk. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we measured that earlier. Thinking, I've got a clue. And they're like, so have you put, have you put sort of worked it all out? I'm just thinking, no, we just got the NS10s, threw them up, and then sort of trying to wing it so that Kevin could earn a few more quid out of it. It's just a joke. Have you had anything in your career that has been quite pivotal in terms of it was a bad experience and you learnt something, you learnt a very important lesson that didn't feel good at the time, but actually turned out to be a very good turning point? Yeah, I think sort of it's more than one occasion, but the same thing. And it's when I was earlier on working with big producers, going back to what we were saying earlier on, and you feel the pressure of them being in there and you having to show off what you can do and change something. And you're taking their track somewhere. You're just, I've got all the buttons in. I've got all the equipment, so I've got all the equipment in basically because it's analog and I'm doing EQ on everything. I'm compressing everywhere and I'm doing everything. And they're looking at me like I'm a mentalist and that what the fuck are you doing to my track? They just want to get out of there. They want to take their music and walk out the room. And you can tell. And so you're talking to them. They're looking at you anxiously. You're looking at them anxiously because you just really want to impress them. And it's a really horrible moment. And you're just thinking, just you're thinking as well, just go away. <laughs> just take your music and go away because I'm feeling really anxious. I also want to really impress you. And I want you to go out of here and tell all your friends how great I am. But you're not going to. You're going to go out and tell them I was mental and I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> And I don't know really what I'm doing. I'm just trying to impress you. And then you end up going round that circle and in the end realising actually what they brought in sounded really good because you've done an hour on it. You've sweated through it without them looking at you because you're in front of them thinking, oh, my God, <laughs> oh, my God. And so then you get to that point where you realise actually they know what they're doing. So calm down. So I probably did that five or six times. And you because you're just, that's just an, the, the learning curve as you're going through not putting everything on all the time and knowing, okay, just relax. But whilst they come in the room, get chatting to them, ask them what they want from their music. What have they been working on? What do they use? How do they want it to sound? Okay, let's listen. And then listen to it a few times with them, discuss it with them, work out what they like about it, what they don't like, and then start mastering. Because before that, I was just walk in the room, great, put it on, start mastering instantly. And it's like, you haven't even listened. You're, you've got your two, yeah. you're one second in and you're already EQing. <laughs> so it's that that you learn from people being in the room with you, which doesn't happen these days. So you have to kind of then learn that yourself, which is the bummer as well these days because you don't get to meet anybody. Yeah, I never even thought about that. It's funny because I'm in Scotland, so it's like it's great for me, but because I've never been brought up with that whole networking and being in studios with people, and because I'm autistic, and I, but I hate most people, so it, probably, it benefits me. But yeah, I think what you've kind of talked about a lot on this podcast is, you know, the importance of networking and putting yourself out there and utilizing the tools that we've got nowadays. You could speak to anybody, you can get work from anywhere. People only buy from people they like, and people only want to work with people that they like. So you have to get on with someone. And the easiest way to get on with someone is to be face-to-face -face with them. 
and to be in the room with them and to chat to them and show that you are a normal person like they are and that you've both got issues and problems and you're both trying to get the best out of this because you both love music and you both love sound and you're both in this together and we want to get a great result so that the artist is really happy and and that's kind of very hard to do when you're on the other end of an email. Yeah, that's true. Because they can be on the other end of an email to anybody, but when you're become friends with them because you've met them so many times and chatted to them so many times, which kind of goes back to what I said earlier on about getting in the conversation with somebody. You have to make friends with these people. You have to become their industry mate because that's the way they're going to trust you and know where you're coming from, understand that you know where they're coming from so you can have a working relationship with them. And then you can build on that. And then if their career grows, then your career grows too. Because loads of people that I've worked with, because I'm in England, mastering engineer, you start, you always do their first stuff because their second stuff always goes to America. So the first stuff, so when you know you can hang out with bands and you can talk to artists and stuff when they, and you help them out when they're starting off, you'll get to do their early stuff and their first things. And then when they, they'll go off because the record label won't trust you, they'll go to someone else because they want to go to America to have that, you know, to rubber stamp that for themselves. And they want to go to the big mix engineer, not the medium one. Like what happened with them with Chipmunk, where they use Spike. And that's just the way it goes. You know, you use a bigger mix engineer because it ticks the box in the, in the boardroom. So, you know, that's... Um, that's why you need to build relationships and it's it's hard to do these days. But again, great, great advice. And no, what's tricky, honestly, I don't, Ed, I don't think we ever had a shit episode where we've had somebody on. We've always had such a wealth of knowledge from every guest we've had on and this has been no exception. Yeah. So, Ed, yes, it has been emotional, has it? As always, would you like to, would you like to um, do your, do your, um, your, your nice little outro and, because um, I'm just going to waffle. So, you know what? On you go, Ed. I'm done. Thanks for tuning into the Working Audio Tools podcast, available on YouTube and all your streaming platforms. Thank you for DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. Remember, there's a 30% off VIP link in the podcast description and podcast show notes. A big thank you to Streaky for coming on. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you master my tracks, and it's been a pleasure to chat to you in this episode. It's been emotional. We will see you on the next one. Thanks. <laughs>